All right, I think we will get started. Um, reminding you uh, just a little bit about the book of Hebrews, um, if you haven't been here for a while. But the, the argument of the book of Hebrews is the superiority or the preeminence of Jesus. Uh, and we're in that section now, where uh, in chapter 7, where the author is presenting Jesus as a high priest, the high priest, our high priest. And uh, just a reminder that there are two major covenants uh, that the book is, that is the book of Hebrews, is comparing and contrasting the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, and the new covenant. The old covenant, the old order, the Mosaic covenant, had a high priest. The high priest was the one who on day of atonement would go into the Holy of Holies and all that that I think you're familiar with. The new covenant also has a high priest. It's Jesus. And that's, the author is in the middle, well, really just beginning, his magnificent discussion about Jesus as our high priest. But you also, I hope, remember that Jesus as our high priest is not after the order of Aaron. He's not a Levite. He is after the order of Melchizedek. And we spent time talking about that last week as we went through what the author is saying. So let's pick up now with verse 11. And um, I, I want to spend a little bit of time on his use of the word perfection. Verse 11, chapter 7, book of Hebrews. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, before we look at the rest of the verse, look at what he's saying. The assumption is that the Levitical priesthood would never produce perfection. It would, now let's think about what that word means. It would never be able to save. It would not justify. That was not its purpose. Now, it is really important to, to understand what he's saying. He's not, um, he's not saying anything negative about, I shouldn't say negative, wrong with the Levitical priesthood. Because, uh, just an example, in Romans 7.12, Paul says of the law, it is perfect, it's righteous, it's good. So the fault isn't the law. And the law... And the Levitical priesthood and all that was not to do an atonement for sin once for all to save us and so on. It was to explain, to lay out in detail how the Israelite would walk with God. And if you let your eye go down to verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment it is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. Now, what I did in my Bible is I circled the word perfection in verse 11 and in verse 18, the word useless and weakness. Because all three of those words, that triangle of words, if you will, relate to salvation. Not its function, not its purpose, not why God set it up. But if you are talking about the issue of salvation... That was not its purpose. That is not what it was supposed to do. So he says, if perfection had been attainable through Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? So I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Do you understand the nature of the question? If perfection in terms of salvation could be attained under the law of the Levitical priesthood, Jesus wouldn't need to come. There wouldn't need to be another priest, another priesthood. You follow that? That's what he's saying. But he goes on, for when, verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So he's he's making an important connection here. The Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, is linked inextricably with the law. So if this changes, the nature and purpose of the law changes. Following? He's just linking the two. And in, in one say, well, so, well, I knew that, but maybe you hadn't thought about it. But it's not what may seem obvious is not necessarily obvious. He wants to make sure everyone understands 
that the law and the priest, the Levitical priest, are linked together. And if one changes, the other one changes. So now he goes on. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Jesus said nothing about priests. So, wait a minute. Who said nothing? Moses. Moses, who you know, who's who wrote the law. So, what is he saying? He's saying that the high priest in the old order. This is the old. The high priest in the old order is descended from Aaron through Levi. Okay, the new order is is not descended from it's descended from Judah. And that high priest, I'm just going to write HP, high priest is Jesus. Jesus Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. And what he's saying, the author is saying, Moses didn't say anything about the tribe of Judah producing priests. The tribe of Judah produces the king, King Jesus. And we learned that last week. King Jesus is a king and a high priest, just like Melchizedek was. So that's all he's saying here. Right? Okay. Just your silence. I'm never sure whether that means you understand it or your silence. I have no idea what you've been talking about for the last five minutes. But if you're not clear, let me know. All right. I mean, he's just, he's step by step by step, he's working us through the superiority of Jesus as our high priest in the new covenant. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Now, what I did, and I did this in your notes on page 15 over to page 16, what he does now, once he's established the linkage, once he's explained that the high priest of the new covenant is from Judah, i.e. Jesus, now he wants to show the superiorities of Jesus as our high priest compared to the Aaronic priesthood. So you'll, you'll, And I'll identify it. It's in your notes, too, but I'll, I'll, I'll work through it. He, he, when we're done with this, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, you'll step back and say, yes, I really understand. Jesus is a superior high priest in the new covenant. And that's where, he's, that's where he's going. Okay, verse 16. He is in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis concerning bodily descent. What does that mean? His lineage, his genealogy. Because Moses never said Judah would produce a high priest. Well then, he says, but by the power of an indestructible life. It is in his lineage... It's his resurrection. Indestructible life, his resurrection. And then the author says, you know, that's truth that was in the Old Testament. That's truth that a Jew who knows the Old Testament should recognize this. So what does he quote? Psalm 110, verse 4. I mentioned this before, I'll state it again. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament because it deals so much with Jesus in a, in a prophetic sense, in prophecy sense. And so what does he say? For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the author is saying his indestructible life, that is his resurrection, qualifies him to meet that stipulation in Psalm 110, verse 4, a high priest forever. The Aaronic priesthood was not forever. We, uh, I hope you can remember this, we learned that much earlier, that the Mosaic covenant and all of the priestly functions associated with that had a very specific time of beginning and a very specific time of ending. Do you remember that? Okay, just in case you don't remember it, I'll just uh, 
uh, let me see, I think I'll draw this as a vertical timeline. Okay, this is the Abrahamic covenant, which we've talked about many, many times in this class. That's the Abrahamic covenant, which was given to Abraham, he's in Mesopotamia, about 2000 BC, i.e. 4000 years ago. It's an unconditional, eternal, unilateral covenant. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, the Mosaic covenant was added to, that's the language he uses. This is the Mosaic Covenant. I'll abbreviate. Mosaic Covenant was added to the Covenant of Promise until Messiah. So if you want the dates, this would be 1446 BC. This would be AD 33, April the 3rd, to be very specific. That's when Jesus died on the cross, April the 3rd. AD 33. I hope you can read that. So, Paul is very, very clear. That really helps me, and I want it to help you, that the Aaronic priesthood was not an eternal priesthood. It would begin here, it would end here. Why? Because Jesus, as the Messiah, this will fulfill it all. It's done. The Mosaic Covenant has fulfilled its purposes, fulfilled its function, it's over. It's not bad, it's not evil. It's just Jesus fulfilled it. And that's why the New Testament keeps using this word, particularly the Gospels, keeps using this word of Jesus. Fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. So it's over. So when you understand this, what I just did here, then you understand why what he's saying in verse, uh, what is it, verse 16 and 17 is so powerful. Jesus' priesthood is high priesthood, not like the Aaronic priesthood, which had a very specific beginning and a very specific ending. It's forever. And he quotes from Psalm 110. You're, high, you're our priest forever. Why? Because of his resurrection. All right. Jim, uh, on, on this thing of, of the, uh, there was repentance under the Mosaic and the Abrahamic uh, covenant. Sure. And so they did have a repentant heart, but it wasn't necessarily unto eternal salvation at that time. Can you explain? Of course, that it was. Okay, sure, it was. Yeah. Okay, that's what I was. Well, about. Not, but remember, and he 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 talks about that a little bit here. But you have to go to Romans four and Galatians three. Has God always saved by faith plus nothing else? Yes. You're always justified by faith. That's God's pattern. So whom does he bring to the witness stand? Abraham. 4,000 years ago, when in the, the New Testament was written about 2,000 years earlier. How was Abraham, let's use language we would use today. How was Abraham saved? Genesis 15, 6, by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. And by the way, in Romans 4, Paul quotes that four times. So that's pretty important. So you know, with, with faith comes a change of your mind and a change of your understanding of God. Metanoia in Greek is repentance. You are changing your mind about God. You're embracing everything he said and you're believing him. In the New Testament, you're embracing everything that Jesus did, everything it said about Jesus. You believe it's true. Jesus is not now some crazy man or some lunatic or just some great teacher. He's the son of God who died on the cross for my sins. You have repented. You have changed your mind. And now you begin that lifestyle of changing the old patterns and adopting new patterns of, of righteousness. So, um, how else to answer your question? So, uh, on the, on the, when Christ went to the cross, he, through his shed blood, anyone who believed on him, they were saved. That's right. And it was eternal salvation. And so... Can you explain how the sacrifices kept coming then year after year? Uh, Before Christ yes. and the Old Covenant, right. Mosaic Covenant. Well, yes, and we talked a little bit about that last week, but the, the function of the Levitical sacrifices, in, in effect really the function of the whole law, was not about salvation. That is the biggest mistake people make, that there are two ways of salvation in the Bible. There's the law, and then there's Jesus. That's wrong. 
That is not what the Bible teaches, and I refer you to Romans 4. You are saved by faith plus nothing. That has always been God's way of saving people. So what was the function of, for example, what was the purpose of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? One day out of the calendar year, high priest, what was the purpose of that? To atone for sin, to cover for sin. But how many times do they have to do that? They have to keep doing it. They have to keep doing it. We're going to come here in just a minute to a very key phrase in the book of Hebrews. When Jesus offers his sacrifice, it is once for all. We do not need the sacrificial system anymore. That's why, again, that word up there, fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled all of that. That's the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. The whole argument of the book of Hebrews is Jesus fulfilled this law, the stipulations of the law, the atonement and covering for sin. He did it once for all. Don't have to do it anymore. And I'm Peggy and I somewhat kiddingly, but also quite seriously, say often, we are so glad we were born this side of the cross. I mean, that's a very serious statement because if we were born in a thousand BC, we'd be have to we'd need to take offerings up to Jerusalem. We would need to do that to atone for sin. Our faith and our trust in God, believing what He's doing, believing what He says, is how we were saved. To use a New Testament word. Okay, does that kind of get it? Your sacrifice. What was the purpose again? That's how you walked with God. I mean, okay. you. Uh, I mean, there, there were there again to get not get in the mire here of Leviticus, but there are several different. There's the burnt offering, there's the peace offering, and there's the free will offering, and the devotive offering. All of those, they're they're different. Like if you, I mean, example, you have been praying for something, and the Lord answers that prayer. You could take a thank offering. It doesn't have anything to do with sin. You're just expressing your thanks and gratitude for God for blessing you. And you'd offer a sacrifice. And they're called a sweet savor offerings to the Lord. A burnt offering is atoning is partially atoning for sin. There's that once for all atonement for sin for the whole nation. The entire nation of Israel. That's Yom Kippur. And then there's the Passover offerings. Then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But all of those have little different purposes in your walk with God. Now, uh, and Paul talks about this a lot in his 13 letters, now you should have you should have a thankful spirit to God all the time, thanking and praising him daily. You don't take offerings anymore to do that. Okay, Romans 12, 1 and 2. What's your offering now? Burnt offering? No. I present my body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to my God. So Paul, and well, not just Paul, but the whole New Testament uses the language of the Old Testament, law, sacrifices, ceremonies, etc., and applies them to, or maybe illustrates them to, or makes analogies with our walk with the Lord Jesus now. Uh, yes, right. So the... The only one that could atone would be the priest. He had to go beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies. That's right. And at Christ's death, the veil was... That's right. And that meant everybody had access. That's right. And that's coming up in chapter 8. It's a magnificent truth. And that's why Jewish, and it's a struggle, Jewish people should read the book of Hebrews. I mean, that is the book for a Jewish person to read that has not yet recognized Christ as the Messiah. And that's the, the book was written for them anyway. But it just it's, it makes all of the connections that need to be made between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant centered in Jesus. And if we can keep going, I'd love to get to the second superiority. So the first superiority is what? He is a high priest forever. The Aaronic priesthood was not time time limit to it, right? Now that will be on the, I'm going to give you a blank sheet of paper in two weeks, and I'm going to ask you to fill that in, all right? I won't require you to know the years, but I will require you to know the content. I'm pretending like you're real students. Second, second, verse 18. But for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and usefulness, for the law 
made nothing perfect. That's back to verse 11. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. In terms of salvation, if that's the category you're looking at, the old system was weak and useless. That was not its purpose. I mean, for a person who says there are two ways of salvation in the Bible, direct them to verse 18. You get that clear? No, that was not his purpose. But the other hand, this new high priest offers a better hope. Better hope. Did the old have hope? Yes, the hope was that God is taking care of the sin problem through the sacrificial system. Better hope. Once for all. As Fred, this is where it's leading, Fred mentioned that a moment ago. What's going to happen, and you'll see this, but you already know this happened. When Jesus died on the cross, that curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies was cut in two, severed, it tore. And so now, now, what's the consequence? The result of that, we can draw near to God. Now, it's not the high priest that come in there. Everybody come in there. There's now 24-7 access. So the new covenant has a better hope. The old had hope, but the new has a better hope because it's finished. It's completed. And so, again, he's contrasting. So the high priesthood of Jesus is superior because it offers a better hope. It's based on something that's better. It's not that this old one didn't have any hope, but the new one has a better hope because we don't have to keep going through this. And then it has the hope, I mean, Hope is a huge word that has lots of implications to it. But it's all wrapped around the, the, the wonder of the promises that Jesus has made to us and what he's going to fulfill. It's all wrapped around his second coming and that kind of thing. Still with me? Third superiority, verse 20. And it is not without an oath. The it, the it is referring to the priesthood. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became high priests were made such without a, an oath. But this one, high priest after the order of Melchizedek, i.e. Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He's re-quoting Psalm 110, verse 4. That's tremendous. The difference between the priesthood under Aaron and the priesthood under Melchizedek, i.e. Jesus, is the Heavenly Father swore an oath. I am making a vow. I am taking an oath. I'm putting my right hand on the Bible. I'm making that up. But I'm putting my right hand, or I'm putting my right hand on my heart, or whatever it is, taking an oath. I'm swearing this by my name. You are a priest forever. I will not change my mind on so this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What's he going to call it in chapter 8? The new covenant. So again, contrasting the two. The high priest, under the old order, God did not take an oath swearing anything about that high priest. But the high priest of the new covenant, after the order of Melchizedek, God the Father does swear in us. I swear by my name, you are a high priest forever. Obviously superior. You know, some people feel I've sinned. I mean, they're Christians. They say, I've, I've sinned. God will never forgive me of that. It would be good if a brother came alongside and corrected and encouraged that person in this word that's not true right. that is devil's lie that's right designed to defeat testimony of that Christian and handcuff him for the rest of his life that's right and that freedom exists simply by asking God to forgive that person of their sin right then 
That's right. And provide some insurance, whatever, that they are still a child. Now you're you're not talking about judicial forgiveness. You're talking about relational forgiveness. Yeah, a Christian, a person who already has a relationship. That's right. With 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 the Lord, so they have already been judicially forgiven. You're talking about the relational forgiveness. That is their walk with the Lord. They sin and and so on, and uh, ask the Lord to forgive them, or they haven't asked for the Lord. I've done something so egregious. He's not going to forgive me. Yeah, that's that is false teaching. The best, the best verse, and really the whole passage, but First John six through first through chapter two, verse one, is about the walk of the believer. First, the blood of Jesus goes on cleansing from sin. Verse six, verse nine. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to cleanse, forget. Uh, chapter two, verse one. Jesus Christ is our advocate legal term. He stands at the right hand of the Father, and anyone that makes accusation, he's right, nope, belongs to me. He's forgiven, judicial. So, I mean, you have that certainty that had absolute conviction and depth of conviction that I am forgiven judicially, and all he asked me to do is agree with him about my sin. And if you wallow in that, that's the tool of Satan. And that is a very, very, very effective tool of the evil one. It really is. Because uh, it can so um, paralyze a Christian that they become ineffective in, in just about everything. And they almost give up. Uh, verse 23, the fourth superiority. Again, if you're following, this is written in the notes too. Now, just listen to the language. The former priests, under the Mosaic Covenant, Aaronic priesthood, the Levites, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Okay, that's kind of duh. But they're mortal. So every time a priest died, what had to happen? Somebody had to replace them. Every time the high priest died, somebody had to replace them. So they choose and go through a ritual. Okay, all he's saying is the priests of the old covenant died and had to be replaced. It's not that they're evil, it's just that's just the system. Verse 24. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Back to Psalm 110, verse 4. Back to the resurrection. Why is Jesus high priesthood forever? Because of the resurrection? Because he's a God-man, it's an eternal priesthood. Unlike the old, where the priest died and had to be replaced, that's just a natural thing because they're humans, that's not Jesus. So that's kind of, okay, I got that. But now look, look at the application of this. Consequently, he is able to save, I love this phrase, I hope all translations have this, save to the uttermost, completely, comprehensively, Totally. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, I don't know if you get excited about biblical truth, but there's something to get excited about. Why is it important that Jesus' priesthood is an eternal high priesthood? Because just like the old one, He's making intercession for us. Now you understand what that means. Right now, Jesus is praying for you. Does that sort of stir you a little bit? Say, oh amen. my, yeah, thank you. I was about to say, there's a great place for an amen, but you missed it. That's what my, my pastor says that. But I mean, it's just, it's just oh my goodness, now I'm starting to really, in a, at an applicational, personal level that's really meaningful to me, I mean, up to this point, I'm just giving you biblical theological truth. Now, he's throwing something in there. This, applicationally, is really meaningful for me. He's praying for me. He's making intercession for me. With the Heavenly Father. Oh, man. I shake my head in amazement at the grace of God and how much he cares for us.
And you know this, just to add another layer of blessing, if you go to Romans 8, you also learn that the Holy Spirit is praying for you. Amen. I mean, you just think, oh, man. I mean, it's just, it's almost overwhelming how much God loves us and cares for us to the, the extent to which he will go to demonstrate his love and care for us. Now, the author is developing this in the context of the high priesthood of Jesus. But meaningfully, this is just, whoa. This is a, it's just a remarkable dimension of his priesthood. I mean, that's why his high priesthood today is not, you know, he's offering sacrifice, or he did that at the cross. But he's got lots of other things he's doing for us. Right now, praying for us. First John 2, he's, verse 1, he's our advocate, defending us against the evil one and so on. It's almost too much, but let's keep going. One more. It's all, the spiritual blessings are so overwhelming, you're probably going to say, stop, stop telling me all these blessings. <laughs> One more. Verse 26, superiority number five. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest. That is, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this, here's the phrase, underline it, star it, put a yellow mark on it, 14 exclamation points, once for all, which he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in the weakness high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So this high priest, this high priest, offered a once-for-all sacrifice. It was himself. It wasn't a lamb. It wasn't the sprinkling of the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat. It was his blood which was shed. And so you have this remarkable, he's tying all the loose ends together now into a tight theological knot. His sacrifice, which he offered, was not the blood of a lamb. It was his blood. And it's not a continual ongoing sacrifice. It's once for all. And then did you notice, did you catch that one thing in verse 28? He's not only a high priest, he's a son. The son of God. He's deity. So you have this, uh, this excellence, uh, it's just a great word to fit here, this excellence of the high priesthood of Jesus. If you review again those those superiorities, those five superiorities, I, I had them in your notes. We just went through them. His life, his priesthood is is one based on his resurrection. It's a priesthood forever. It's based on a better hope. The old had hope. This is a better hope. Thirdly, it's it's based on an oath. Father swore an oath. Psalm one hundred ten verse four. I swear by my name, you are a high priest forever. Fourthly, it's based on the eternal priesthood. And fifthly, it's based on a once-for-all sacrifice, the Son of God. He's not only a high priest, he is also the Son of God. So it's, it's, it's the excellence of Jesus' high priesthood that has been uh, magnificently argued here by the author. Again, this is... Um, it's a passage that is enriching for you and me because he told us that as our high priest, he's making intercession for us. And it's also a passage which for a person who's a Jewish, of a Jewish background, who's struggling with trying to come to terms with Jesus. Is he my, my Messiah? This is a great passage to direct them to. It really is. All right? I have a question. On, um, I'm, I'm puzzled by verse 11 there, or 12 rather, um, 7, 12. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Uh, we had the Levitical priesthood established 
by Moses. And why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not Mueller? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. Well, doesn't that, what, it seems to me that the law need not be changed. It just doesn't apply anymore. Would that be uh, safe to say? Uh, I mean, the Jews still, they have their priests, you know, still. So I, I, I don't follow uh, well, why it says it, the law must be changed. It just doesn't apply anymore uh, once once Jesus <coughs> comes along and, and then Christ. Um, Maybe I'm just nitpicking. Well, no, it, it's, uh, I mean, you're asking a really good question because what he is establishing here, as we commented, I think, he is establishing a linkage between the Aaronic priesthood and the law. Those things are linked. They're inextricably linked in, in the Old Covenant. But if the high priesthood changes, and it does once Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection occurs, is there a change in the law? Not necessarily. It's just, what do you mean, not necessarily? Well, what, what okay, if there's no change in the law, do you, have to go up to, do you have to go up to Jerusalem and offer sacrifice no. anymore? Do you have to observe the Sabbath? Do you have to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Do you have to observe the Passover? Your answer to that is, yeah. no, you don't. <laughs> you don't observe those things. There's been a change well, in the law. Um, well, who changed it? I mean, God changed it. I, I, I know, I understand that. But See, that's what he's trying to establish, uh, John, that he, if the high priesthood has changed because Jesus is a different high priest after the Melchizedek, he fulfilling the old, then the law now changes. The entire what, ceremonial what, law what has saying, been... What does the law change to? That's why I'm saying, really, the law, just that particular segment of, of the Mosaic law just doesn't apply anymore. They're, they're but, ignoring it. But, uh, because it's... Well, yeah. Yeah, I guess you could say they're ignoring it, but it's fulfilled. It's no longer necessary, which is what he's arguing. But what aspects of the law have been changed. All of those that point to and relate to the the matter how you walk with God and how God takes care of your sin problem. That is all changed because of the once for all sacrifice. Now other aspects of the law though, especially the moral law of God still applies. That the difference is now you have the Holy Spirit under the new covenant who enables you and gives you additional power to fulfill and live that out, which is something Paul talks about. Brings up something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. That's good. Um, I think you answered one of my questions. It's a two-part question, but the parts are inextricably linked. Is there a difference, or what's the difference between ceremonial law and natural law? You didn't use the term natural. You used no, not a biblical law. term. And so are there three pieces that we need to address? Oh, you said three pieces. All right, when you say three pieces, here's how I understand it. Well, I, I, the third piece would be moral law. I, I was thinking of ceremonial law and natural law. Natural law, kind of, is, natural law is not a biblical term. The law, as it is, in the Old Testament is a word that refers to the Mosaic Covenant. I'm not going to write all that out. It has three parts. God's moral law, God's ceremonial law, and God's civil law. The moral law, let's just simplify that. The best summary of the moral law of God is the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial law is how you would walk with God. It involves sacrifices. It involves the feast days. I'm writing terribly. That's G-O-D. We try to figure that out. The civil law is the theocracy of Israel. Okay? This, this is, I'm going to put this, this is fulfilled in Jesus. So I'm writing fulfilled over this. It's good, Paul said, Romans 7, 12. It's good, it's perfect, it's righteous. But it's fulfilled. It is no longer functioning. This is no longer functioning because 
We are not a theocracy. I mean, any nation on earth today is not a theocracy. And so Israel is the only theocracy means God is ruling them directly. This doesn't apply to anybody today. This does apply. Because this reflects God's character. And these are all repeated in the New Testament. And so, in terms of the law, this has been fulfilled. This no longer applies because we're not a theocracy. When the king, uh, in 586 B.C., when the Judas, Judaic king Jehoiada was taken to um, Babylon and, uh, and all that happened, eventually executed and so on, the theocracy ends. Because then the people of Israel come back in the exile 70 years later in 539 B.C., the theocracy isn't reestablished. They're under the rule of Persia. And then when the Persians are overrun by the Greeks, they're under the rule of the Greeks. And then when the Greeks are overrun by the Romans, they're under the rule of the Romans. And then when the Romans are overrun by the Byzantines, they're under the rule of the Byzantines. And when the Byzantines are overrun by the, the, the Arabs, the, the Muslims, then they're ruled by Muslims. And the Turks are overrun, they're ruled by Turks. And then when the Turkish Empire collapses in 1919, they're ruled by the British. So, I mean, I'm just telling you the history. There is no theocracy. So this doesn't apply. This will be reestablished when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom and rules from Jerusalem. But until that, this is on hold. Now, the term that Rob was using is natural law, which comes from the Middle Ages. Aristotle talked about it, too. But it comes from the Middle Ages. And that is the argument that Roman Catholic theologians use for their basis of ethics. Natural law. As you go to law school, you're going to study that. But that does not directly relate to the moral law of God, although there's overlapping. Did you say Aristotle? Aristotle. His Nicomachean Ethics talks about natural law. Okay. And, and, and that, I mean, Aristotle was definitely in the Middle Ages, but... No, 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 but I mean, it is the mid... It is, in, it is in the middle, particularly Aquinas and others, it is in the medieval... Uh, era that natural law becomes very much a part of how the church looks at law. There's canon law, the law of the church, and there's natural law. I'm simplifying a little bit. That's how they talk about it. And I ask because our our founders referred a lot to natural law, especially in the Declaration. Is mm-hmm. ultimate? Yeah. Well, the concept they don't the term natural law does not occur in the Declaration of Independence. But the concept of natural law does. See, the overlap... The law, this is, the, the, the nature's law. Yeah, nature's law. The, the, the challenge when you study the founding documents is they're using enlightenment language and they're focusing on Christian principles. Like Jefferson in Declaration uh, does not talk about God, but he talks about creator, he talks about nature's God, he talks about providence... He doesn't talk about Jesus, he doesn't talk about salvation, but he uses concepts that are central to how the Bible presents things. Like, where do you get your rights? He says, endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Our rights don't come from government, they come from God. But he puts it in the language of the Enlightenment. And the same thing with the, with the Constitution. They use Enlightenment language to refer to biblical principles. And usually that is circulated through natural law. Why did they use enlightenment language? Well, that was, I mean, the United United States of America was born in in the confluence of two major movements. The Enlightenment, coming out of the Europe of the 1700s, and the language of the Protestant Reformation. It's those two coming together. Whereas the French, I mean, and that's, uh, the French... Uh, French Revolution and stuff which starts in 1789, the French based their entire revolution and their entire vision on the Enlightenment. They abolished Christianity and they established the worship of reason and they parade through the streets of Paris a goddess, that was really a prostitute, but it's a goddess, she's the goddess of reason and we worship her. And they tried to totally and completely abolish Christianity. The United States is not founded like that. We take the ideas, because the idea of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness is enlightenment line coming from John Locke and Rousseau. But it's, it's applying it through the grid of a biblical understanding of things. 
Now, we're getting deep into the weeds, and most of you are saying, would you shut up? But it's Rob's fault. He asked me the question. I'm getting over here going like this. Chapter 8. Chapter 8. So your thought paper for next week is 1,500 words, summarize the five superiorities of Jesus as our high priest, and one application. The one application had better be he makes intercession for us. If that's not in there, minus 50 points. <laughs> Just kidding. Verse 1, chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. I just think about that for a minute. Our high priest is seated on a throne at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now that has that resonates through the Old Test uh, through the New Testament. But also think, think of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 begins, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. Now Menon, that only makes sense if your God is Trinity. The Father says to the Son, because Yahweh and Adonai are terms used in the Old Testament to refer to God. So you have, what the author is doing here is he's taking a profound New Testament truth. Jesus' work is completed. It's the evidence of his work being completed. He ascended back to the Father and sat down at his right hand. The author is doing that. But he's now connecting that truth, the completed, finished work of Jesus, his ascension, back to the right hand, sitting at the right hand of the Father with his high priesthood. So that's an additional thought a thought that is not central to Paul in Ephesians or Romans, but it's central to this guy, this writer, because he's stressing his high priesthood based on his once-for-all sacrifice. So this is, a, this is a tremendous truth that our high priest is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And then, as we learned a couple of verses ago, making intercession for us, and then I would add 1 John 2, 1, He's there as our advocate. When we are accused by the evil one, Jesus stands up and says, he belongs to me. That's what advocate means as we translate it into English. He's our advocate. No one can bring a charge against us. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, your high priest is standing at the right hand, as our advocate, no one... And, and, and Revelation 12, verse 9 says, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He can bring no accusation against you. Because you belong to Jesus. Amen. He is your high priest. He is your advocate. And so that accusatory role of Satan is baseless. And it, it means nothing once... Once we put our faith in Christ. That's a tremendous thought. Great truth. People will accuse us from time to time of this or that. And yet we know that it is not true because of the truth <coughs> we learn from this book which you're explaining yep. to us. And so we don't alienate the accuser from because of the statement. But we reach out, perhaps, to them. Well, yeah. You're talking about a human accuser, another person, yeah, or whatever. The, the, uh, the, the larger issue of comfort is the accuser of Satan, because he is the accuser of the brother. Constantly bringing back, did you see what Jim Ackman just did? Did you see what Jim Ackman just said? And you call him a Christian? Jesus says, yes, he belongs to me. I mean, that's, if there's something he has to deal with and what I'm doing, he deals with that through the discipline of me. But I'm his, and so are you. As First John, or First Corinthians 6.19, Paul says, we belong to Jesus. We're bought with a price. 
So, I mean, they're just, they keep saying these things over and over again in different ways throughout the New Testament. So the author, the author here, now just follow this. This might get a little difficult here. A minister, continue now in verse 2. Okay, he's our high priest, enthroned, see it's right hand of the Father. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Okay, what does that mean? There is a temple in heaven. You'll see more about that coming up. That's where he ministers. For every high priest is appointed, now he's going to explain this. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, in the Old Testament, Levitic priests would offer sacrifices and the free will offerings and thank offerings of the people. He would do that. He's their mediator. He's their intercessor. Verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to law. But what's going on? Remember, when the author was writing this book, the temple still existed, sacrifice still going on. Well, he says of those, verse 5, they serve as a copy. The Greek word for a copy is tupos, T-U-P-O-S. We get our word type. They serve as a type, a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, he explains this, for when Moses was about to erect a tent, tabernacle, he was instructed by God, this is in Exodus 25:40. see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So God showed Moses a pattern of the heavenly tabernacle. This is what you're going to build. This is exactly the dimensions, exactly what it's going to look like. So the tabernacle that Moses built is based on the model in heaven. That's what he's telling us. Does that make sense? Okay, now that's just a simple statement. What is our high priest in heaven? Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. What's he doing? If he's not offering sacrifice, which he's not, he's not carrying out any functions in the heaven, what's he's not, what's he doing? I wants to explain this to us. And we're only going to get started. You're going to have to wait two weeks for this to be complete. Because remember, we don't have class next week. I don't know if I can wait. I think I'll pay, postpone my trip and not go to Pennsylvania so I can go back next week. That's not true. My ticket's already bought. We're going. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant. A new covenant. The covenant he mediates is better since it's erected on better promises. So what the author is now going to do is transition from the old covenant based on the sacrifices, etc., of the high priest and Levitical priesthood and all that we've been talking about to the new covenant. Because he tells us it's more excellent than the old as a covenant. It's better, and it's based on better promises. Okay, you'd better explain that. That's what he's about to do. And what he's going to do, and that's what verse 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, he's going to quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. You might, if you're really interested in digging in a little deeper, you might want to also write, see Ezekiel 36, 24 through 31. Because there are two major statements of the new covenant in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. That Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 31. I hope I didn't confuse you. But he's quoting here from Jeremiah 31. Now, we're not going to be able to get all this finished. But he wants to explain, what do you mean it's a covenant that's better based on better promises? Let me explain it to you, he says. For if that first covenant had been thoughtless, 
there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which one's more excellent, better, based on better promises? You're going to explain it. He says if that first covenant had been faultless, implying that there was faults to it. That's right. Same as verse 11. uh, Had not been perfect. Same perfection, exactly. Imperfect. That's right. Now, I'm going to read all this, and we'll start it. We'll have to take it apart in two weeks. Behold, this is Jeremiah writing. Remember, Jeremiah writes right before they are taken into captivity in Babylon. It's about 585, 586 B.C. He's writing this. For the whole days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. There's the phrase, circle it, star it, underline it, highlight it, yellow, 19, um, 20, 21, exclamation points. I want you to notice something. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. When Jeremiah wrote this in 586 B.C., the house of Israel had been conquered. It was gone. The Assyrian Empire had conquered it. They were dispersed, 722 B.C. The only thing that he's dealing with here is the house of Judah. I don't know if you're familiar enough with the history of the Old Testament to understand what I'm saying. But what he's saying here is really, really instructive. The new covenant is for all Jews. Those are the house of Israel, the ten tribes of the north, and those are the house of Judah, the ten two tribes of the south. What had happened to the ten tribes, they had been defeated. They're gone. They've been dispersed. But this new covenant is for all Jews, all twelve tribes dispersed. Who inaugurates the new covenant? Jesus. So it's just really important. I don't know if you caught that. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, where they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. He sent them into exile, in other words. So the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is what we were talking about here. He had taken them... He had taken them out of Egypt and in 1446 B.C. at Mount Sinai gave Moses the new covenant, or the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law. That's what he's saying. I did that for them. But they didn't walk in obedience, loving obedience with me. So I sent them into exile. And so Jeremiah is saying this, speaking for God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You Jewish people, I'm sending this out. Don't lose hope. I'm going to inaugurate a new covenant with you. And so that gave them hope. It gave them a reason. And that's why when they go to Babylon and they they live there for 70 days, 70 years, and then they come back and reestablish Judah and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple and so on, they're not ruling themselves they're under the rule of Persia, but it's really fantastic what happened. They began to preserve their loyalty to the law and loyalty to God because they knew if we disobey, what's he going to do? Send us into exile again. But they're living with this hope for the new covenant. When's this going to? And the new covenant becomes all wrapped around the coming of the Messiah. That's their hope. Now, let me just read this, then we'll stop, and next time we'll really take it apart. For this covenant, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each his own neighbor, because each other is saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And what the New Testament does is apply these truths to the church as well. You come to know Jesus Christ, this applies to you as well. You and I participate in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. So next week, I want to, or in two weeks, I want to talk about all the details 
of particularly verse 10, 11, and 12. Look at verse 13. In speaking of new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Obsolete doesn't mean it isn't good. It just means it's no longer operative. And that's what, that's what he's arguing. All right. We have done a lot. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, I had somebody say to me, my brain is tired. So mm-hmm. I maybe have thrown a lot at you. But I hope you're tracking with the author here. It's magnificent. The takeaway this morning is Jesus is my high priest at the right hand of the Father making intercession for me. He's praying for you. Isn't that exciting truth? Man. I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for the grand, grand truth that you are our high priest. You are a high priest forever. You are, you are forever making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. No one can bring an accusation. Satan cannot stand at your throne and say, did you see what such and such did belongs to you? Jesus is our advocate. He's praying for us. He tells us in John 17 that he's praying that we will not submit to the wiles of the evil one. He's praying that we will sustain our faith and be strengthened. Lord, all of those things are almost beyond our comprehension. That's how much you love us. That's how much you care for us. And that's how much you want us to succeed in our walk with you. Thank you for those great truths. We praise you, Jesus, for being our high priest. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling us and being the sign of that new covenant. And Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us so much that you sent the Lord Jesus and you are conforming us into the image of him, which is the whole point of sanctification. So Lord, in these things we now leave, we are dismissed with the thought that you are forever making intercession for us. That's a grand truth of our faith. So as we go our separate ways on this beautiful day that you've created and are sharing with us, we want to represent you well. Help us to do that. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen.